0: Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Let's get after it. If you have a Bible, please open up with me to Mark chapter 14. Uh, Mark 14 is where we'll be this morning as we continue on in our series, Invasion of the Land. Uh, We'll go over the Gospel of Mark. We started just about a year ago. Um, We took a break over the last few weeks to do some silly iPod series. We're over that. We're back to adult series church. (laughs) Okay. Uh, and we will um, now finish off the book of Mark. Uh, so we've just got a couple chapters left. We'll finish in November, God willing, and then be ready for uh, Advent series as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior, which is always a special time uh, for our families and for uh, our church in general. Now, i got to start this morning by confessing uh, a little bit, okay? This is church, hopefully a place where we can confess our sins to one another. i very publicly... Um, taking a stance as a nonviolent Christian. So I um, take Jesus' commands to love your enemy and to bless those who persecute you very seriously. Um, and I have to say that I have broken my nonviolent vows. I recently moved into a new apartment, and there has been an infestation of sorts of a certain pest that will remain unnamed. I have attempted peaceful uh, negotiations. <laughs> I did some prayer, I asked nicely for them to leave, um, and now I'm employing the just war theory, okay, last resort, uh, and now it's violence and death and destruction, okay, uh, and so I would appreciate your prayers as I go on this conquest um, to rid my new apartment uh, of this, um, but I just thought I, would, I needed to get it off my chest, okay, <laughs> I'm very publicly known um, for Trying to avoid violence, but in this case, it's the only option. There's lots of blood and lots of destruction going on around my apartment these days. Um, but uh, I'm not sure about the theology of cockroaches. I think it's somewhere under satanic in the systematic theology. Um, but we'll, that's a, that's another sermon. So um, we're in Mark 14. Let's read together. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 12 uh, and we'll read through verse 25. A very powerful moment in Jesus' life. And a very powerful text for you and I this morning. Mark chapter 14, we'll pick it up in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So remember, Jesus and his disciples have traveled to Jerusalem. Um, In Jerusalem at this time are Jews from all over the world. Um, they flock there, like people flock to New York City okay, for um, the New Year. It's a very busy time uh, in Jerusalem. They've all come to celebrate the Passover. Um, Jesus has caused quite a stir in the last few days, uh, and so people are on the lookout for him. They're trying to arrest him. They're plotting against him. There are plans in place to get him killed. Uh, and so he has to kind of, if he wants to celebrate this Passover, do it secretly. So the disciples say, Um, What are our plans for celebrating the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and he tells them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large of a room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Kind of an unusual story, right? Um, Jesus says, go over there, you'll find a guy, he'll take you to a room, he's not going to ask questions, those kind of things. Um, What's most likely here, um, we're clued in because uh, usually only a woman would be carrying a jar of water. Uh, And so it would be very unusual to see a man carrying a jar of water in the the streets of the city of Jerusalem. Um, What's most likely happened is Jesus already arranged with a certain gentleman Um, that he needs a private room for the Passover. So this is much kind of James Bondy, Mission Impossible, right? Like um, you're passing off a note, right, with a handshake. Just go there. You're going to see something unusual. There's going to be a guy kind of standing around with a water jug. That's your man, okay? Follow him. Say, I'm with the teacher. He's got a room prepared for us, okay? They're going to need to celebrate this Passover in secrecy. So the disciples do it. It's just like he had told them, and they've got a room prepared. Um, verse 17 when it was evening he came with the twelve and as they were reclining at table and eating Jesus said truly I say to you one of you will betray me one who is eating with me and they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another is it I now the um, way the Greeks formulated here with this question um, the question anticipates a negative answer um, almost as if we were to say it's not me right Um, They're going around and they're sorrowful and thinking about who would betray uh, our leader in this room. It's not me, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. Um, One theologian, um, Vernon Robbins, uh, says this after reading the Gospel of Mark, no Christian can eat the holy meal without asking himself, am I myself a betrayer of Jesus? Uh, Part of what it means to eat the meal is to go around the room and say, surely it's not been me. Uh, And while we uh, perhaps... Uh, can't be sure of our innocence, um, we can know our guilt. right? We can know our complicity in uh, the sin of the world which caused Jesus to go uh, to the cross. He said to them, It's one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Again, now, this Greek word for many, in English, when we use the word many, it involves necessarily exclusion. So if I'm telling you a class like I did Friday, many of you passed the tests, uh, the opposite of that is some of you did not pass the tests. Um, in Greek, this word "polon" used here is, doesn't necessarily have that exclusion aspect included. It, it means many, maybe not all, but possibly all. Um, many. This is the um, blood of the covenant poured out sacrificially given for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, this is a very powerful moment in Jesus' life, and a very powerful moment in the church's life and how the church has become to be structured and has come to know how to worship and gather together. Um, While Mark's gospel is written in the 60s, um, not like the 1960s, like the real 60s, like 60 A.D., um, his community that would have been receiving this gospel, hearing this gospel, would already be familiar with the practice of celebrating the Eucharist or this giving thanks. Thanks. Um, Kind of imitating the Lord's Supper every week. Paul, 20 years before this letter is written, is instructing churches in Corinth how to celebrate this meal. Um, Very quickly, um, Mark's version doesn't have Jesus giving instructions to the disciples to keep doing this meal. In other Gospels, those instructions are there. Um, You'll keep on doing this meal um, in a way to remember me and to celebrate me and to keep forming you as my people. Um, so Mark, when his community is hearing this, they're very familiar with this practice, right? Every Sunday when they come together to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, they partake in this meal and they remember this supper that Jesus instituted with his disciples. And it's very, I think, very significant that when Jesus wanted to explain And communicate to his disciples what his ministry, what his death, what his resurrection meant, and what it was about, and what it was supposed to do. He gave them something to do, he gave them a meal, he gave them an action. He did not give them a theory, he did not give them a lecture, he did not give them a formula. There's a temptation for people like me who talk a lot and have a lot of ideas to talk too much. And so when we get to things like the Lord's Supper, there are debates that have raged on throughout the church about certain aspects of the supper that takes place here and then that's recreated every time the church meets. uh, Things of that nature and there's that tendency inside of me, right, to want to put my stamp on all those questions and all those debates. Um, but, but what I want to do this morning is not talk too much. I want to just talk about what's here and more. And I want to say not too much, not because some things aren't worth saying and worth discussing, but because I think it's significant that Jesus, as he comes very close to his death, as he, he gives this one last meal to his disciples and says, do this over and over and over again. This is how you will be my people. He doesn't say, here's the idea. Memorize it. He has to say, here's the formula. Here's the theory. He says, do this. Eat this. Swallow this. Taste this. And this will be how you remember. This will be how you celebrate. This will be how you are formed as my people. There's a distinct, I think, human instinct to commemorate special events with meals um, in a distinct... Uh, deep level um human desire right i mean when we get together with family when we get together with friends um there's something about gathering around a meal that that uh, creates community and that creates memory and that creates relationships and that creates bonds um you can think through i know for uh in my life most of the people i'm closest with are the people that i eat the most with um It would be worth your time to go and and Google and just look at the psychology behind eating with other people. Um, There's something very rich that takes place in the human brain between social relationships when human beings eat together. There's a Jewish proverb, um, you are who you eat with. Um, Eating with someone tells you a lot about who you are and what you value um, and about um, the kind of community that you keep and and, um, the kind of hopes and goals that you have. Um, It's not a mistake that when we get together for special events or special occasions, whether it be a birthday or a holiday, these things are usually centered around a meal. Um, It's not a mistake that a family who usually is able to take the time out to eat together regularly is usually a closer family. Uh, It's usually a family that shares more of the same values. It's usually a family that knows each other more deeply uh, and is more connected to each other. Um, this is, I think, just the instinctual, deep truth about human nature. And it's one that God taps into very early on in the history of his relationship with creation. And so when he comes to the Israelites, he sets up, uh, as part of um, how the Israelites are supposed to be his people, this series of festivals and feasts centered around a meal um, and if you were to lay out the Jewish calendar, they have lots more off days than the typical American work calendar. Um, God takes eating together and partying together very seriously. Uh, in Leviticus, he repeatedly says, if you do not stop working for one week and have fun together, I will kill all of you. Um, he's very, very serious about it. Um, And the highest festival, the highest feast the Jewish people had was what's called the Passover. And they're celebrated every year. And the Passover comes from the story of the Exodus. If you're familiar with the story, they are um, the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. And um, God raised up a leader, Moses, to free them um, from their slavery. And um, the ten plagues come. And um, right before they are eventually freed and let out in the Exodus, um, God gives a kind of advance uh, enacting of his divine judgment. He says the angel, the spirit of death is coming um, and the only way for the Israelites to be saved is for them to sacrifice this lamb called the Passover lamb and put the blood on the door. And it would be the, in the act of pouring out that blood that they would be passed over. It's significant that the Israelites are not just exempt from the angel of death. Right? Um, it's not as if they're perfect and the Egyptians are evil. Um, no, they, they need some kind of substitutionary action, right? They need some blood poured out on their behalf for the angel to, to pass over them. And so they do so. Um, the Egyptian firstborn sons die. Um, they leave um, the uh, Egyptian slavery and are on their way to the Promised Land. Um, you'll remember, though, um, they spend some time in the wilderness uh, before they get to the Promised Land. And what God does is he says, um, that meal that you ate, you ate that lamb, um, and then you put that blood on the door. I want you to have this very specific, very detailed, very festive meal once every year to remember that. And in that meal, certain things will happen to you that go beyond if we just sat around and talked about ideas. Meals will say more than we can actually communicate with words. And meals will do things to us that perhaps we're not aware of. Um, You know, that's the the thing about eating together, celebrating together. Um, They communicate more than, than what our language is often able to communicate. They communicate who we are. And so when the Jewish people celebrate, they're the people of the Exodus. They're the people of this God who freed them. They communicate how we feel about one another. We love one another and embrace one another. We're a community together. They communicate about the hopes and the joys that we share. Now, we only have on record in Numbers chapter 9, the Israelites celebrating the Passover once during their time in the wilderness. you remember they come out of Egypt and in the wilderness for a generation before they actually get to the promised land. The goal is not itself to get out of Egypt, right? That's just a means to the goal. Um, The goal is to get to the promised land. Um, And so they celebrate the Passover once, and then they don't celebrate it again. At least we're not told that they celebrate it again until they're back in the promised land, until they're in the land. Um, And a rabbinic tradition has always had very interesting thoughts on why there's no record of the Israelites celebrating the Passover during the wilderness. Perhaps it was that they had forgotten and they were ignorant. Uh, Perhaps it was, if you know the story, the Israelites at some point decide they'd rather be in Egypt. Um, The wilderness is not the place for them. Um, They start to doubt God's promises. And so perhaps they're unable or unwilling to remember when God freed them from Egypt. Or unable or unwilling to look forward to a day when they'll eat a new meal in the promised land. And so God creates this meal. The Jewish people celebrate it. Jesus comes and celebrates it with his own followers. Um, and what's important and significant about this Passover meal is um, the things that are similar um, to a normal Passover meal and the things that are dissimilar. Okay. Um, so just like in a normal Passover meal, okay, and what would happen is the head of the household in the first century, toward the end of the meal, would take the bread and he would break it and give thanks to God for it. And he would say this is the bread of our father's afflictions. And Jesus here, though, radically changes the symbols of this Passover meal. He says, instead of this bread representing our father's afflictions, this bread is representing my body, the body that's about to be given for you on the cross. And instead of this blood being the blood of a Passover lamb, in fact, there's no mention of a lamb in the supper at all. Maybe Mark just doesn't mention it. Maybe there is no lamb. Because Jesus considers himself the Passover lamb. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away our sins. Jesus, says, This is my blood poured out for you. Jesus is making a very significant development with the Passover meal. He's saying, we've been celebrating the Exodus, this ultimate act of freedom from Egypt. What I'm about to do, what's about to happen in front of you, and why I want you to keep doing this, but now in remembrance of me and not in remembrance of Israel and Egypt, is because there's a new Exodus that's about to happen. There's a new freedom from tyranny that's about to take place. but it's not from Egypt, and it's not from Rome, as many Jews at the time hoped for. It's from a much deeper, darker, seedy enemy of humanity. Sin itself. Death itself. These things are about to be conquered, like God conquered Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies. This is what you're about to be freed from. And Jesus says, so you will celebrate this. In terms of celebrating the accomplishment that I have given you uh, through the cross and through the resurrection. Jesus, in a sense, puts the church in the time period in a temporal structure where we are in the wilderness. Um, Notice that he mentions the future. Um, So Jesus says to them, this is the blood of the covenant um, which poured out for many. I say to you, I won't drink again of the fruit of the vine that day until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Um, this is pretty significant and, and people so much struggle over what exactly Jesus means when he says this here. Um, it seems to me like Jesus is making a hunger strike of sorts. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm not going to drink this wine again until we drink it together when all of this is finished. When we're actually at the promised land. We have this hope, this future ahead of us. Um, A hunger strike is a way of showing commitment, right? I refuse to eat until this happens, or I will not eat or drink until I accomplish this. This is Jesus saying, um, while we've been freed, right, he's about to free us from sin and death, we're still in this wilderness aspect. Hebrews does the same thing, right, as Christians, the church today, right now, we've been freed like the Israelites coming out of Egypt, but we're not yet at the promised land. Right? There's still sin and death around us. As so we pray for those who have cancer, we go to funerals, we still wait for that promised land, that new creation. Um, the scriptures say, when Jesus returns and all things are made new, we'll enjoy a supper with him. It seems as if this is what Jesus is referring to. He says, I'm not going to drink again until we're all together, until this is all finished. And then we'll drink, and then we'll feast, and then we'll celebrate. It's an act of commitment. Jesus is um, committing to sobriety until he redeems all things um, with and for us. Um, The closest I think you get to a commitment like this on God's part in the scriptures is found in Genesis when God makes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, And He tells Abraham, I'm going to, through you and through your descendants, through Israel, I'm going to end up blessing the entire world. And then in Genesis 15, he cuts the covenant. He makes it official. Uh, And so how you would do that in the ancient world is you'd cut animals in half and you'd walk between them. Uh, And the kind of symbolism of this would be that if I break my end of the promise, what happened to these animals is going to happen to me. Um, But if you read Genesis 15, Abraham's actually asleep and God does it himself. It's a one-way promise. Um, God basically is putting his own life on the line. He's saying, I promise on my life that no matter what happens, I will bless the world through Israel. And here we have another promise like that from Jesus. I'm not going to drink again until all of this is accomplished, until we're living in a new world with redemption fully here, no sickness and no death and no pain. And so for now, the church is in the wilderness, and the church practices this meal every week as we get together. Um, and as we practice this meal, it should, I think, serve both of these purposes for us: um, the meals we come. Again, I, I think there's that tendency to try to over-explain it with theories. Um, he didn't give us a theory. He Didn't give us a formula. He said, eat, drink, taste it. How do you know you participate in Christ? Because you're swallowing it. It's becoming a part of you. It's nourishing you. Something you can do every week. We talked last, um, a few weeks ago when we did baptisms about baptisms as a sacrament being a gift to us. Not necessarily a requirement um, that's meant to burden us right, and bear us down. Um, I think communion as a sacrament is similar it's not something you have to do it's something you get to do you get to swallow you get to taste you get to participate in this meal and it should remind us to look backwards about Jesus' death on the cross when through death he paradoxically defeated death freed us from sin and it should remind us about a future day, a meal coming up not too long When we'll be drinking not just with each other, but with Christ himself in a new world, devoid of sin, devoid of death, devoid of pain, and devoid of tears. And just like meals communicate who we are, they communicate our hopes and our joys, meals communicate how we feel about each other. For Paul, the pressing issue with communion is... Um, that communion should be a symbol of the unity of the church. When we come together, we're not only expressing our allegiance to Jesus and our worship towards what he's done on our behalf and what he will do on our behalf, we're also expressing our commitment to one another we eat this meal together because we are together, the community. Jesus says, the blood that's being poured out is the blood of the covenant. He's referring to um, an Old Testament tradition where God had promised Israelites to bring a new covenant about. And, and the basic concept of this new covenant was a community was going to be formed who had transformed hearts. Who were able to obey and follow in a deeper way than human beings have ever been able to obey and follow God before. Um... So often we get caught up in theories about what Jesus' death did metaphysically, right? In God's mind, in our minds, in terms of sin and accounts and whatnot and those kind of things. But one thing we can say historically, what did Jesus' death accomplish? What did his resurrection accomplish? It created a community. And maybe we can be satisfied with that answer. What did his death and the resurrection accomplish? Well, it created a community of people who were committed to following him, to trying to practice his commandments and love God and love others, to follow the ways of peace and mercy and justice, to take care of one another, in so doing, being a city on a hill, for the rest of the world to look at how we live among each other and glorify God and give praise to him. Jesus says this, this blood that's being poured out, this death that's going to be accomplished, it, it's going to enact this new promise, this new community of people who will come together, not only to remember what I've done, not only to anticipate what is to come, but also to live together in faithfulness as we follow after Jesus. And so with that, I have no more to say. I have nothing else to explain. I have no theories for you no explanations for you Um, but I can invite you to the table I can say come come and taste come and swallow come and enjoy this meal come and remember what Jesus has done for us come and, and long for that day when we eat this meal with Jesus himself when all things are made new and come and remember who we are as a community committed to following christ and loving each other faithfully would you pray with me